The amazing day of Yom Kippur is upon us. On this day, the Almighty will forgive us. He's going to purify us from all our transgressions. This is a day of supreme closeness to God. The Talmud tells us that the word Hasatan, the Satan, equals numerically in the Gematria system 364. There is one day a year that the Satan is non-functional. It's non-operational. There's one day that we have no blockades separating us from God. And that is Yom Kippur. This is the day that we are supremely close to the Almighty. And He is beckoning us to come close to Him, to reach out, to repent, to regret our distance that we have fostered between us and Him via our deeds. This day, of course, corresponds to the day that Moshe descended the third time from heaven with the second set of tablets. This is the day that the Almighty completely restored His feelings towards us that were damaged with the sin of the golden calf. On this day, He forgave us, and on this day, we resumed the closeness that we have with the Almighty. At Sinai, prior to the egregious sin of the golden calf, and this day is forever designated for forgiveness, for atonement, for purification, and for expiation. Now, if you think about the day of Yom Kippur, there's an amazing insight that emerges. Yom Kippur is a day of judgment. We have the judgment that starts on Rosh Hashanah, and it culminates, it concludes on Yom Kippur. And of course, we know on Rosh Hashanah, our verdict is inscribed, it is written, but it's written, shall we say, in erasable ink. It could be changed before the deadline, before the verdict is sealed on Yom Kippur. And we have 10 days, starting with the first day of Rosh Hashanah, culminating at the very end of Yom Kippur, at the Ne'ilah service, at the sealing of the judgment. We have 10 days to amend and adjust the judgment that we were given so that we get a good outcome. And on each of these 10 days, we cry out to God, Avina Malkeinu, our God, our Master, our Father, our King, Kira Roadzar Dinenu, tear up the bad parts of our decree. Inscribe us in the book of good life. Inscribe us in the book of redemption and salvation and prosperity and merits. Inscribe us in the book of atonement and forgiveness. Despite the fact that on Rosh Hashanah, our verdict is written and Rosh Hashanah is over, that verdict can be amended, can be rewritten. Those bad decrees can be torn up and annulled. And what is the final deadline? Yom Kippur. That's an amazing thing. We have two, so to speak, concentric aspects of Yom Kippur that coincide on the same day. It is both the day where we have the final deadline and the final verdict and the judgment is sealed. And coincidentally, it's the exact same day that the Almighty said, I forgave the Jewish people. It's the day most suited for mercy and forgiveness and atonement. Isn't that an amazing thing? 
There's an incredible kindness that the Almighty did to us that the very same day where our judgment is sealed, that coincides with the day that the Almighty is most forgiving of our misdeeds. What an incredible opportunity. The Almighty, the judge, is going to seal our verdict on the day that he is most likely to be forgiving of even very severe and egregious misdeeds. But of course, nothing will happen if we do nothing. We have to take the first step. We have to invest the energy and the effort to have a meaningful and productive Yom Kippur. And today, I want to survey some of the loopholes, some of the tips and tricks, some of the hacks to earn a positive outcome on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day that our fate for the year is going to be determined. According to some opinions, it's not just our fate for the year, it's our eternal fate in Olam It's a day that we really, really want to make sure we get right. And we discover that there are certain things we could focus on. There are specific areas that we can work on to best position ourselves to have a fantastic outcome on Yom Kippur. If we want to earn the atonement and the purification and the rectification and the new lease on life on Yom Kippur, I think it's helpful for us to study the various strategies and tactics of how to do precisely that. So let's begin. We'll start with the basics and we'll get to the more exotic solutions as we progress. So of course, the first place to start is the Unasana Tokef prayer that we say on Musaf, the beginning of Musaf and the Chazan's repetition of Musaf, both on Rosh Hashanah, Tuesday, Rosh Hashanah and on Yom Kippur. We talk about Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, the verdict will be written and on Yom Kippur, it will be sealed. Everything's going to happen. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? Who's going to die prematurely? All the various different ways that people will die. Who's going to ascend? Who is going to regress? Who's going to flourish? Who is going to suffer? Who is going to experience entropy? And then we say, Uchuva, Utfila, Utsedaka, Ma'avir, Nisra, There's three themes that can remove can annul the evil decree. Tshuva, repentance. Tfila, prayer. And tzedakah. So the very first place we got to start is these three themes that we say in our prayer and featured, of course, in the Talmud of how to remove the bad parts of our decree. So, of course, repentance, we spoke about in the past. It makes a ton of sense why this would remove our decree. Repentance is about changing who you are. You're a changed person. You may look very similar to the person who sinned. That's your doppelganger. It's not you. That's your twin. The decree, the bad decree, God forbid if there was a bad decree, foisted upon us on Rosh Hashanah. I repent. I'm a different person. And therefore, this person who's now repented, that's not the same guy that got the verdict or that got the the, the original, um, the writing of the verdict on Rosh Hashanah, it's not the same person. If you change your identity, then of course you change your fate. Makes a lot of sense. Repentance, that's the first thing we have to focus on, the tips and tricks to earn a positive outcome on Yom Kippur. 
Well, what about prayer? How does prayer remove the evil parts of our decree? So I'll tell you an amazing precedent for this. Of course, that we could talk about this for an hour, at least, about how prayer removes bad decrees. But listen to this. In chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham is told, Yodoa Tate, this is by the Brisbane, I'm sorry, by the covenant between the parts. Abraham is told, you should surely know that your children, your descendants, will be foreigners in a foreign land. And they will be enslaved and tormented for 400 years. And of course, that decree was fulfilled. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac bore Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They went down to Egypt. They spent hundreds of years in Egypt and eventually were enslaved. Now, in actuality, the amount of years that the nation spent in Egypt was not quite 400. In actuality, it was 210 years before the Exodus. How did they chop off the last 190 years? How did they remove that part of the decree? So there's an amazing Ramban in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, it says that they were really supposed to be in Egypt for 430 years. So we have 400 years initially told to Abraham, and then we're told that they they left after 430 years, which is actually 430 years from the time of the covenant between the parts. And by the way, as an aside, on the Parsha podcast, Parsha's bow, last year, we did a talk on the 11 dimensions of exile. It was a uh, very well-received, shall we say, podcast about the 11 different timelines of how long the exile, so to speak, in Egypt lasted. Give it a listen. But the Rabban here says something fascinating. He says the original decree was 400 years. But then the nation in Egypt, they became sinners. And they repudiated the Abrahamic mission. And they stopped doing circumcision. And they refused to abandon the idols and the pagans of the Egyptians. And they might have said, because of their bad behavior, I am adding another 30 years. So the plan was for them to be for 430 years. But what happened? The nation prayed. The nation cried out to God. The nation sighed in pain, and that yelp ascended to heaven. And the Almighty heard their cry. And the Almighty heard their pain. And the Almighty acceded to their prayer. And you know what? The decree was 400. 30 years were added. It was supposed to be 430. But because of their prayer, the decree was changed and 190, or maybe even more, another 30 years, 220 years were lopped off from their decree. Their cries of prayer annulled the decree and chopped off 220 years from their sentence. That is how powerful prayer is. And by the way, prayer works even for the, some of the worst people of our history. 
in the whole Korach rebellion that we read about in the book of Numbers, Moshe prays to God, God, do not heed, do not listen, do not accede to their prayers. This is Numbers 16, 15. Moshe is worried, even though Korach, even though Korach is in the wrong, and he is launching a rebellion and insurrection, a mutiny against Moshe, nevertheless, prayer is that powerful that had Korach prayed, and had Moshe not prayed to stop Korach's prayer, who knows what would have happened in this episode. I read a crazy story about prayer and the effectiveness of prayer, and what we actually mean when we talk about prayer. I read this actually last night. such a moving story. It's a story about a childless couple. For many years, they were barren. They were infertile. And the husband went to the chief rabbi of Ofakim, who's a very famous rabbi. His name was Rabbi Shimshon Pincus. American-born rabbi moved to Israel, just an astonishing person who sadly, tragically died very young, but whose writings fill bookshelves. And he, in fact, wrote an amazing book on prayer called She'arim B'Tfila, Gates of Tfila, Gates of Prayer. So this man, this husband, goes to this great rabbi and tells him his plight. My wife and I married for many years, and we're barren, we're infertile. Help us. Give me a solution. What should I do? So he tells him, come back at two in the morning. I'll see what I can do for you. So he shows up at 2 a.m. And the rabbi says, okay, we're going on a trip. Get in the car. They go into the car and they're in the southern southern part of Israel. All is in the southern part of Israel. And they drive to the desert, the Judean desert, the Negev, there's nothing around for miles and miles. And it's dark, it's pitch black. And they drive to some part of the desert and he says, get out of the car. <laughs> get out of the car! You're alone in the desert. It's just you and God. I want you to pray. I want you to cry. I want you to beg and implore and beseech God. Like you're talking a man to one's fellow. And only through that can you be saved. I'm leaving. I'll be back in a half hour. This is your chance. Half hour later, the rabbi drives back. And he sees the man. He says, no, sorry, you didn't cry enough. You didn't cry enough. Cry more. Really implore God from the bottom of your heart. Your entire being, every fiber of your soul, lay it all out. I'm coming back in another half hour. Half hour later, the rabbi comes back and he sees the person's entire face drenched in tears. His entire clothing are drenched in tears. And he smiled. He says, this is what I meant. Now you will see a salvation. And indeed, They had a child. When we talk about prayer, prayer is where a person kind of exposes themselves, makes themselves vulnerable, and really cries out to God. 
Not just, oh, you read, read Hebrew here, put on my talit, read the Hebrew like a robot. This kind of prayer, it unlocks all the heavenly gates. Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 32b, since the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer are sealed. But there's one gate that was never sealed. Share Dima'a, the gates of tears, they weren't closed. Even if a person is undeserving of the money answering his prayer, if it is so deep and so raw and so heartful that it brings them to tears, that prayer will burst through all obstacles. If someone really, really, really wants to have an amazing year and really takes this seriously and prays in this fashion, they'll switch around their decree guaranteed. Repentance, number one. Prayer, and not just any kind of prayer, real, sincere, heartfelt prayer, that's number two. And then we have number three, just with the basics. Number three, the tips and tricks to earn a positive outcome in Yom Kippur, tzedakah, charity. And of course, charity means all kinds of kindness and benevolence and generosity shown, to, shown towards other people. Now, this is something you don't need the Talmud to tell us. It's a fa- in fact in scripture, tzedakah tatzil mimaves. Charity spares a person from death. And the Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos 156, a really interesting story. It tells us that the great Shmuel, so we talked about in the past about Rav, Rav the founder of the Babylonian Academy. The other founder is Shmuel, Rav and Shmuel, the two founders of the Babylonian Academies in Babylon in the second, the third century, the 200s of the Common Era. So Shmuel was having a conversation with a, a great Gentile sage named Avlet. Avlet, who was a stargazer and a, a, a clairvoyant. He was a, obviously a sage, and they were having a conversation. And they see a person going to the lake. And this Gentile stargazer sage person, guru, psychic, he says, that person, he ain't coming back. He's going to die today. And Jamal says, no, he's a Jew. He'll make it through. So they're sitting there, they're chatting. And uh, before you know it, that person comes back. He's alive. So this Avlate guy, the Gentile sage, he went to the person's burden, the person's backpack, the person's satchel. And he says, let me see what you have inside there. He opens it up and he sees there's a snake, a venomous snake, and it's cut up into two pieces. He says, I, I know, this person was going to be bitten by a snake, but somehow they survived. So Shmuel, the Jewish sage, walks over to this person and says, well, what do you do today? What merit did you have to be saved? There was indeed some sort of decree upon you, as evidenced by the fact that we see the snake and we know that this ovulate Gentile sage, he knew things about how things uh, work in the heavenly spheres. But something happened. There was an intervention. So the individual tells him, he says, well, we go to work every day. And then we have lunch together. All the workers, all the laborers get together for lunch. 
It's like a potluck lunch. They gather all the food, everyone gives their contribution, and they put it in the middle and everyone shares. And today I saw that there was one person who was so poor and destitute, he didn't have anything to bring to contribute to uh, towards the collective, the, the, the pooling of the resources of all the of all the laborers. So I said, you know what, today I'm going to collect the food from everyone. I'm going to collect. And he went to every person and said, give me what you have here. And he made believe that that person who didn't have anything to contribute, he made believe that he was taking something from them. And then when they pooled it all together, no one knew the difference. As an aside, the commentaries asked, wait a minute, that's not fair. It's not fair for the person to not contribute towards the collective and then to eat with everyone else. The commentaries give a variety of different answers, either that the person who collected themselves did not eat that day, they contributed but didn't exhaust and take, and they said, you know what, whatever that person takes, that was my share. Alternatively, that the person who didn't contribute, he was spared from shame, he was spared from the embarrassment, but he didn't eat. Or maybe the person afterwards, he told everyone else in private about what happened and everyone forget, forgave them. But regardless, this was an opportunity for this person to be embarrassed. And this individual who had a death sentence looming upon them because of their kindness and their sensitivity to other people, he was spared from this death. So Shmuel said to him, he did a mitzvah. And then he went and he taught everyone. Tzedakah, charity, benevolence, goodness, kindness, will spare from death, and not only from an unusual death, but from death itself. And indeed, the Shulchan Aruch, the book of Jewish law, in Yerodeah 2.47 tells us, Tzedakah, charity, doche es hadzeros hakashos. It casts away the evil and harsh decrees. Tatsil mimaves, it saves a person from death. And then he adds, of course, uh, tithing makes a person rich. We've talked about that in the past. And then he adds another amazing insight. A person never becomes poor from giving charity. And no bad things or damage befalls them from giving charity. So when we start off the question, how do we make sure that we earn a positive outcome on Yom Kippur, the place to start the basics are these three things, tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, tshuva, repentance, tefillah, prayer, tzedakah, charity. These are sure ways to be spared from a bad judgment and from harsh and evil decrees. Okay, what else do we have? Well, we have forgiving others. The Talmud tells the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 17a, if a person foregoes the evils done to them, the Almighty foregoes the evils that that person did to God. The person says, you know what? Other people, they were bad to me. Ah, I'm not going to be so specific. I'm not going to be so meticulous in figuring out exactly what they did wrong to me. I'll just forgive them. The Almighty says, okay, if you do that to others, I will treat you tit for tat, I will treat you mida keneged mida exactly the way you treat others. I'll treat you. And I too won't be so exacting in how I judge you. I'll be more forgiving. And of course, if the money forgives us, that will manifest itself in us earning 
a positive outcome, a positive judgment. The Kabbalists say an amazing idea. If a person is told, God is angry at you. God's disappointed with you. God is displeased with you. You sinned to God. You did a crime against the Almighty. Person feels terrible. Person says, Oh no, what do I do? I don't want God angry at me. I want to make amends. They say to him, You know what? You can make amends, but you need to fast for 25 days. And then you need to roll in snow. You need to suffer. You need to flagellate yourself. Or worse, they say, you know what? God will forgive you, but he wants to, he wants to kill three of your kids. That's the price he wants to pay. He wants to cause you torture and torment and suffering and you'll become poor and you'll become an invalid. We say, you know what? I don't know about that. I, I want forgiveness, but I don't know how badly I want it. Maybe I'll deal with the Almighty's anger. Just don't cause me all this pain. And here the Almighty's telling us, I'm not, I don't want that. I don't want to cause you pain. I don't want to cause you suffering. I don't want to cause you loss. I don't want to cause you poverty. All I'm asking is for you to be gentle and kind and forgiving and understanding for the people. It's cheap. That's all I want. It's inexpensive. I'm not asking for much. I don't want you to suffer. I want to make this pleasant and easy for you. It's an easy solution. Be easy and forgiving to others. Of course, it's not easy to do that. But it's way better than any alternative. We want the Almighty to be very easy with us. We're easy with others. He will be easy with us. And the commentaries point out that when we are forgiving for other people, there are a lot of benefits that we accrue. It's a really good bargain. The Talmud tells us in many places all the incredible things that happen to someone who is easy and is willing to forego the evil done to them. In the book of Megillah, page 28a, it says, you will live a long life if you are forgiving to others. In that same page, it says that the Almighty will forgive your sins. The Zohar tells us that you'll be saved, you'll be spared from an unusual death. Your decrees, the evil decrees, will be be ripped up and you'll be given more life. The Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 152b, tells us someone who is benevolent and magnanimous in forgiving others, after they die, their bones won't rot. The book of Titus, page 25b, tells us their prayers will be heard. The world, the Talmud, the book of Hulan, page 89a, tells us that the world endures in their merit. They merit Torah. The Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, rests upon them. If someone is able to do just this thing, forgive others, be more understanding of other people's misdeeds, not only will they earn a good outcome on Yom Kippur, but there are all kinds of other residual benefits that they will accrue. Similarly, we're told to be merciful to others. Shabbos 151b. Call Hamerachem Alabrios, whoever is merciful on the creations, not even humans, but all the mice creations. Merachamim Alav Minashamaim. He will be a recipient of divine mercy. Tit for tat. 
we get to determine how much mercy the divine judge will give to us. If we are merciful with others, he will be merciful with us. Again, the book of Shabbos, page 127b. If we judge others favorably, the Almighty will judge us favorably. In fact, there is a famous teaching from the Baal Shem Tov. He says that the way a person is actually judged is that they are shown what they did as if they were an outsider. They get to judge someone else who did the identical thing that they did. And the way they judge others is the way they themselves are going to be judged. When you judge others, that is actually a reflection of how you yourself will be judged. With your misdeeds, who determines how you are judged? You yourself. Just like, of course, the famous episode of David. He judged himself when the prophet came to him and gave him the the story of the the man with the sheep. We know that story. David, in fact, judged himself. He didn't know it at the time, but he did that. And we are the ones who are going to dispense judgment to ourselves. If we're merciful, if we're forgiving, if we are foregoing, if we are willing to just move on, judge others favorably, then the Almighty will respond in kind to us. Kindness, the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 5a, going into page 5b, kindness earns forgiveness. Moreover, if we are kind to the Almighty's children, the Torah tells us that the Jewish people are like the children of the Almighty. If we are kind to the Almighty's children, how incredible will the Almighty respond in kind to us. If we are kind to the Almighty's children, he will be kind to us. So this is kind of the next layer of the tips and tricks to achieve a good outcome. We have, of course, tshuva, repentance, tefillah, prayer, tzedakah. And then we see about, about how we treat others. The way you treat others is the way you yourself will be treated. For merciful, for kind, for forgiving, for going. If we do good and we're magnanimous and benevolent towards others, the Almighty will respond to us and judge us in that same fashion. Okay, here's where we get a little bit more exotic. Another way to be successful in our judgment of Yom Kippur is to have many dependents. Dependents, it turns out, is good not only for tax purposes, but for the judgment of Yom Kippur. In fact, the source of that is in this week's Parsha. Listen to this. This week's Parsha, Parsha Hazinu, we read in chapter 32, verse 4. This is the song of Hazinu. Hatsur Tamim Paalo. We call God the Rock. His deeds are perfect. He called Rachav Mishpat. All his ways are just. Elumunav Ein Avel. He is a God who's a truthful God who has no iniquity, there's nothing corrupt about his ways, tzaddik v'yashar hu. He is tzaddik, he's righteous, and he is straight. It's the verse, the fourth verse of our parsha. seems like we're praising God. Oh, the Almighty is righteous, he is just, he is straight in his ways. 
But if you think about it, this seems like kind of muted praise. Of course, God is just. Of course, God is righteous. Is that even praise? Even a human could be a righteous judge. In fact, that's the expectation of a human judge. So how do we praise God and say, oh, the Almighty is so good? He's just in judgment. He's righteous. He is not corrupted. It seems like it's it's a very weak praise that we are giving to God. What does this actually mean? So Rabbi Israel Salanter says something fascinating. He says, suppose you have a righteous judge. And there's a criminal brought to trial in front of the judge. And the righteous judge examines all the evidence and lets out all the witnesses, the testimony, all the parts of the of the evidence presented before them and they render a just ruling. But then the individual says, you can't give me such a long prison sentence. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a business owner. I have people that depend upon me. And what's going to be? You're punishing them as well. They're innocent bystanders. Why should they suffer? Is that a legitimate case to be made before a human judge? The answer is no. A human judge can only judge the accused, the defendant. And if the defendant is guilty, the human judge, operating with the principle of justice, must render the verdict irrespective of the other consequences that are not directly involved with this person. But the Almighty's judgment is not like that. Hatsur tamim pa'alo, his ways are perfect. His judgment is completely righteous. Even the after effects of the Almighty's judgment are taken into account. And therefore, if there's a punishment rendered on an individual, all that person's dependents are also affected. And the Almighty will only render a bad verdict to that person if, in his way of doing judgment, of course, it's too advanced for us to try to parse out, but if, in his way of doing judgment, all those people are also, so to speak, worthy of that happening to them. The Almighty would not punish a father if the child of that father is not, so to speak, deserving, in the way the Almighty does it, of having their father punished. There is absolutely no corruption in the Almighty's judgment. There is absolutely no iniquity. Anyone who receives, even in a tangential way, some punishment for the actual accused's punishment, that is all perfectly calculated. And therefore, the more people who are dependent upon you the more people need to be found guilty for God to punish you. Because after all, he's punishing them too. The Talmud tells us that if a member of a cohort dies, every single person in that cohort should try to do a self-examination. 
Why? Because if a member of your cohort is punished, you are also in a slight way punished as well. And therefore, the Almighty is displeased with you as well to a certain level. Otherwise, he wouldn't have caused you even the minor displeasure and pain, obviously relative to the individual who died. And therefore, everyone needs to figure out why is the Almighty not happy with us. Now, as an aside, the Chazon Ish, he's used this principle to say that a true believer should not get life insurance. Why is that? Life insurance means if I die, at least my wife and kids will be taken care of. That's what life insurance is about. But in effect, you are shielding your wife and children from the financial impact of you dying. And therefore, the argument goes, if you have life insurance, there are, so to speak, less people dependent upon you. And therefore, you may, in effect, be signing your own death certificate. Because maybe you're supposed to die, but you know what? If that will have such a negative financial impact on your wife and kids, well, they're not guilty of anything. And therefore, that will keep you alive. But now you have life insurance. There's one less, so to speak, cause that's contingent on you staying alive, namely the financial stability of your family. And therefore, there's one more reason or one fewer thing dependent upon you. And therefore, there is, it's kind of easier for you to be punished. Now, I'm not making any statement. I think people should have life insurance. I have life insurance. I don't know if this is relevant to us, but the principle is true and universally accepted. And therefore, another piece of good advice, if we want to have a positive Yom Kippur experience, a positive sealing of our judgment, is to try to figure out how to become more of a communal person. If you're the Gabbai in the shul, well, the shul needs you, and therefore they'll have to find another Gabbai, and that's another, so to speak, argument that you can make to God, hey, don't cause the whole shul to be upended. If you have children, of course, punishing you will punish them. The more children you have, the more dependence you have, the more has to go into the account, so to speak, if the Almighty wants to punish you. The more responsibilities you undertake, the more you do for the public in whatever way you do, the more hinges upon you, the bigger, so to speak, the group of people that are going to be affected by you being punished, and therefore the less likely that you will have a negative outcome on Yom Kippur. The great Panavijarav, the founder of the great Panavijeshiva in Israel, he was in a hospital bed and he summoned some of his students and says, I want to open up a new yeshiva. And he was about to undergo a very complicated and risky operation. I said to him, wait a minute, you're about to go under the knife here. Why are you thinking about opening up the yeshiva? And he said this point, I don't know if I live or I die, but if there's another yeshiva that depends upon me, maybe that will tip the scale in favor of me surviving. So this is another idea. The more that the public is dependent upon us, the more, so to speak, nodes there are that are kind of relying on us, the more of a communal person that we are, and the more likely that we will emerge with a positive outcome on Yom Kippur. And finally, I want to talk about the New Year's resolution. 
Traditionally, during the Ne'ilah prayer at the very end of Yom Kippur, there's a custom, a universal custom, to make a resolution to concretize your repentance and your experience of Yom Kippur, to take a first step towards the new you that you're pledging to God that you are committing to. Now, my, my teacher, Basharil, used to say that you should always add into your resolution that the benefit of the whole year's worth of resolutions should accrue to me now. But the accepted tradition is to make sure you make a resolution that's real, that's concrete, but very small and very manageable. Something really tiny, but something that could eventually grow and develop into something very big. A tiny seed of change that could develop into a growth pattern that will change the course of your life. And like a seed, it's infinitesimally tiny compared to what it could eventually become. How big is a seed of a sequoia tree? It's very small, but that's where it all starts. I was thinking if someone wants to become more religious, more sensitive to matters of Torah, I mentioned this in the past, we give out a torch, we give out for free the torch light switch covers. Many of you, I'm sure, have have them already. We still have plenty more. Go visit our website or send me an email. We'll send you some. If someone says, I'm going to dedicate one light in my house, that that is the Shabbos light, and come what may, I'm not going to flip that switch on Shabbos. It's tiny. You may have a hundred light switches in your house, but now you've planted a seed. And that seed can eventually grow until you become someone who's totally cognizant of Shabbos. You could transform your life with one seed. And again, it should be small. If the seed is the size of a football, it's probably not going to work. It's too big of a seed. Seed has to be really small, but something that couldn't develop. And the general principle over here is we have to acknowledge and recognize that we have a very formidable antagonist and foe who wants to thwart our change. We come to Yom but we have these big aspirations. We're going to change. We're going to reinvent ourselves. We can never forget that there's something called the Yetzirah, evil inclination, very talented, very wily, very gifted, and committed to make sure that we stay small, that we never change, that we kind of maintain the same bad habits that we have, that we acquired over a lifetime. That's its life mission. And therefore, when we make a change, we want to make sure it's really small. We want to sneak it in through the back door. We don't want to be confrontational. We don't want to make big bombastic announcements. Oh, I'm now a changed person. Because all you're doing is awakening the Yitzhara. A little bit. It's a seed. What did this actually do? It's so small. It's so tiny. Get it? Make sure it's manageable. Plant that seed. Accept that commitment. And that acceptance of that commitment is your own personal Sinai. It's reminiscent of Sinai. Sinai is called 
Kabbalah's Torah, the acceptance of the Torah, the acceptance of the resolution, the tiny resolution on Yom Kippur is reminiscent of Sinai. Something really small, something really tiny, on a very individual level, we're accepting the Torah, but this small resolution is the seed, is the kernel of your transformed self. The great Rav Dessler used to compare a resolution, a tiny resolution on Yom Kippur, to a tiny button in an elevator, in an elevator shaft, in a hundred-story building. It doesn't make sense that if you want to go up a thousand feet, all you need to do is push one small button. It doesn't make sense. It's totally illogical. If you were processing this logically, and you were dropped into the elevator, said, okay, you need to climb up this massive skyscraper, it doesn't make sense that by pushing one tiny button, you can ascend. That is what the resolution of Yom Kippur is. It's a tiny button, but it is what's going to propel you up the skyscraper of a thousand feet and a hundred stories. One tiny seed is going to emerge as a cedar tree, as a sequoia tree, as a massive tree that's going to dispense fruits for generations. It doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't make sense. But provided that that seed, that kernel is targeted, is tailored towards developing the person you want to become, if you do that in Yom Kippur, we are told that the Almighty judges you today when you plant the seed as if the tree is in full bloom. When you push the button, the Almighty says you're ready on the top of the mountain, on the top of the skyscraper. And that is a way to earn a very positive outcome on Yom Kippur. So again, to recap, Yom Kippur is the day of judgment. It's the culmination of the 10 days of judgment. Thankfully, the Almighty is very receptive to our prayers, to our repentance. This is the day most auspicious for expiation and cleansing and purification. But this day is also the day that our fate will be sealed. But we are not bystanders in this entire project. We have a chance to influence what happens to us. And we have learned today a bunch of suggestions and advice, tips and tricks to merit a positive outcome on Yom Kippur. By my count, we have around eight such ideas. Of course, we started off with repentance, prayer, especially tearful prayer, and charity and kindness. And then there's all the other ways that we treat other people, judging them favorably, forgiving them, doing kindness and benevolence, being merciful towards them. And finally, we learned about becoming someone who has lots of dependence, good for taxes, and for Yom Kippur, and making their resolution. Planting that tiny seed, accepting that tiny commitment that will grow and mushroom into something very incredible and transformational. And the Mighty Ready Today judges us when we made that commitment, provided it's small and manageable, and not going to arouse the wrath of the Sahara, not going to cause us to have such friction and headwinds in our quest. We already judged today as if that skystripper has been ascended. May we all merit to have an impactful and meaningful Yom Kippur, a productive Yom Kippur, concentrate our prayers. It's not easy to fast. We know fasting is very difficult. We're asked to fast for 
25 hours, no food, no water, no leather shoes, no washing or anointing, no marital intercourse. There are things that make our life on Yom Kippur very difficult. But again, if there's ever a day that we want merits, it is Yom Kippur. We're lucky they might give us this opportunity to suffer a little bit because it's a mitzvah. And on the day that we need mitzvahs more than any other day, the matter gives us the opportunity to have them all. And it's five in the afternoon, and we're almost up to Nila, and you are famished, and your throat is parched. Well, that mitzvah is just amplified a thousandfold. May we all merit to emerge from Yom Kippur, cleansed from any misdeeds, purified in the great waters of repentance and forgiveness and purification that are featured that day. It's like a mikvah. You come in impure, you emerge pure. May this be the best year yet. If we have any bad decrees, they should be annulled and repudiated and rejected and torn up by the Almighty. And now we know how to do it. We have a list of tips and tricks. May this be the year of total transformation for ourselves, for our communities, for the Jewish people worldwide. Hope it's an amazing, incredible year for all. May we be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. And may this Yom Kippur be the start of our new selves. Let's plant that seed and change our lives forever. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments and all your feedback.